we've seen entertainment branch off into so many different variations. Um, we've seen a lot more creative marketing in the space. So you have to be so smart with your content because th there are just some really brilliant creators out there who don't have any budget, but they're racking up tens of thousands of views um, and minutes watched. And that's what you have to compete against. Um, and all of that is free compared to your ticketed download or your ticket purchase. But then you think about the social landscape. The research and data is hugely significant. When we combine all of these different touch points. Build that long-term loyalty. And then diving into the clicks to leads to sales. It's gotten to a point where it can drive better results in audience targeting. And really is what's going to set you apart. You're tuning in. You're tuning in. You're tuning in to the How Agencies Thrive podcast. Earlier, we had simpler ways to keep ourselves entertained like watching a movie, catching a play, or going to a concert nearby. But now, if you're in entertainment, you're competing for the user's attention among so many things. Television channels, switching between this OTT or that one, binge-watching your favorite YouTuber, scrolling endlessly on social media, and, and of course, podcasts like this one. According to Statista, Total revenue for entertainment is expected to show an annual growth rate of 10.5%, resulting in a projected market volume of 48.7 billion US dollars by 2027. Now that's a lot. And we need an expert to cut the clutter and get right to the chase. Let's find out what's happening in the world of entertainment marketing. Hello and welcome to the How Agencies Thrive podcast. I'm your host, Sneha Suhas from Stack Adapt, and joining today, we have Amanda Au, Head of Marketing Strategy and Client Services, also co-founder at the Anti-Agency Group. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us. Please tell us about your uh, professional background, your expertise, and also introduce your organization to us. Yeah, I'd love to. So thank you for having me. Um, I started my career on the big agency side at one of the large holding groups, um, hired fresh out of college. Um, I was a social strategist um, on the OMD Warner Brothers team. Um, so that's really where I got my start. I was very lucky to have been placed on such a large account, um, working with movies that I got to watch growing up um, and, and continuing to work on products that you get to see on the big screen was really exciting and glamorous. And, and from there, I've went to other large agencies and also client side over at Amazon, um, joining the Prime Video team when it first started. I think I was employee number 19 on that team or something like that. Um, and really seeing the inner workings of a studio, how a show really goes from script um, to the big screen and, and everything in between. Um, and now as an agency co-founder, uh, we work with a lot of entertainment studios. And nowadays it looks so different. That could be, you know, working with a large studio like a Universal Pictures, all the way down to, um, you know, uh, producers, indie films, um, things that go straight to VOD, um, but, you know, still star your favorite actors and actresses nonetheless. Um, and so the landscape has really changed. Um, and at Anti-Agency, we've been lucky to kind of work with a really good mix of people that have really grown and evolved with the changing entertainment landscape. So, you know, we've really stuck our guns with theatrical campaigns all the way to streaming clients and now even broadening our horizons with um, live entertainment. So working a lot with off and on Broadway as well. Um, you know, so we're very lucky. We get to work with a very interesting product. 
um, stuff that, you know, our friends and family engage with on a regular basis. And it's a very exciting subject matter. Um, and also from an industry perspective, you know, one that gets to test out a lot of first to market betas, um, you know, and has very interesting creative that we can do a lot of testing with. And um, so we've been very fortunate in the space to, to kind of see that change, especially in the last, I think, decade where we've had social evolve and, and then also really now with the streaming wars happening and really being front and center with that. Amazing. Um, you've brought so much experience to the table. I'm really excited to talk to you. And I want to start off with this first question about the journey of marketing entertainment itself, right? Um, first part is about the product itself. Like I mentioned earlier, we had limited options, you know, this movie or that. But now it's evolved so much and there are so many options to choose from for what we consume as entertainment. And for the marketing part of it, it's evolved right from maybe, you know, out of home, television, radio to digital marketing. So. Uh, where is it at today? Could you paint a picture for us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really changed so much. I think the word entertainment also has just so broadly defined. Um, if you ask 10, 15 years ago, really, we were talking about, you know, theatrical movies and, and TV shows. And now it's really evolved to what you said earlier. It could be anything from YouTube to creators on social. Um, the competition is really intense. And I think because we've seen entertainment branch off into so many different variations, um, we've seen a lot more creative marketing in the space um, and a lot of competition because a lot of times now you're marketing against content that is a direct competitor you know, to what you're pushing out there. Um, and so you have to be so smart with your content because there are just some really brilliant um the creators out there, you know, who who don't have any budget, but they're racking up um, tens of thousands of, of views um, and minutes watched. And that's what you have to compete against. Um, and all of that is free compared to, you know, your ticketed download or your ticket purchase. Um, and so it really depends, I think, on what branch of entertainment you're really talking about. Um, I can start from theatrical, right, which is where I started 10 years ago. And that looks so different because at that time, you know, we were really focusing on a, a large portion of our budget on traditional media, um, really pushing awareness as the first and foremost uh, KPI. Um, and so you were looking at a lot of out of home um, in all of the major DMAs and the splashiest billboard you can buy in Times Square. Um, you were looking at Super Bowl spots, any TV spots against prime time. Um, and even radio at that point was a huge get. Um, and now you've seen the transition. Obviously, um, there's still a lot of money flowing through traditional placements, um, but really understanding that people are spending time in other places. And so as we've seen consumer behavior turn, um, we've really seen that money follow along with it. And so as us as consumers adopted mobile devices, we're spending our time elsewhere, especially within social media. And um, we've seen a huge explosion um, in dollars moving towards the digital space. Um, and there's just so much more ground to cover, I think, in general. Um, it's interesting how we, we see kind of the talks about how um, advertising spending either goes up or down. And it's, they try to make it about this fight between, I think, traditional and digital, but really the amount of screens and I think places that you can buy advertising has just exponentially grown. Um, and that really should be the focal point of the conversation. Um, you know, it's, it's less of a fight nowadays between should we be spending money on this large TV spot 
Um, or should we push that money into digital and buy more social? Um, but really, it's about where, where we can even buy, where we can target, and then really being smart about it because you have so many more options than you did a decade ago. And so I think that's really where the shift has happened. It's because of availability and, and the potential that has really evolved in the advertising industry that has led to all of these strategic shifts in where people are spending their dollars. So you 100% still have a lot of um, money being invested in traditional placements and they do work. Um, I think we're big believers of using that um, when it makes sense. Um, but now you're also seeing a lot more money um, being invested in digital, um, in audio, um, in digital out of home even now, right? And really being open to testing um, more things. And I think we're also seeing dollars that traditionally were thought of maybe more as PR dollars and now being invested in influencers, um, in brand partnerships and affiliate marketing. Um, so again, there's just a lot more channels for us to invest um, our advertising dollars in. Um, and really, that's, I think, what caused a major shift in um, marketing behavior more than anything else is, is just this bigger opportunity to spend your dollars. Um, and so we've, depending on what we're talking about, you're still going to see, you know, your, your fancy bus shelters and, and bus wraps and whatever, um, for theatrical, but now you're probably seeing an explosion, um, across social media and, and it's probably becoming hard to differentiate, you know, did that last TikTok that you saw, was that actually an organic post or was it actually a paid post? Um, and, and our peers are just getting so smart with it. Um, and I think that's, that's really what we want to see from everyone, right? It's, it's kind of this double edged sword where, you know, yes, we want consumers to know and be smart and aware that what they're seeing is an ad. But we also as advertisers want our ads to be so good that they just think it's, you know, authentic content. Um, and so there's this interesting fine line that that we're walking right now um, between our, our media investment and creative investment. And I think a lot of it has just been a lot of experimentation, especially post-pandemic, um, where, again, consumer behavior has shifted and really understanding what works. And, and I don't know if we've necessarily seen very strong trends come out of the pandemic just yet. I think we're still kind of trying to figure out what that looks like. But in the last 10 years of how quickly things have evolved um, and grown, I think it's just going to be a constant moving target. And those that don't try to adapt are going to get fallen behind. Yeah, you spoke about um, a lot of opportunities and a lot of experimentation happening right now. And there's also a switch to programmatic social search from traditional media, like you mentioned. So I'm guessing there could be gaps in education on this. So what are those things that uh, marketers or clients could generally go wrong with in terms of executing or even asking? Yes, I think one of the biggest things that we tend to see is um, programmatic being treated as a substitute for, for meeting um, minimums that direct publishers usually require, right? So um, you know, rather than having to put all their eggs in one basket with one publisher, in their minds, programmatic is this open network where they can try out multiple sites at one go, but they're still very specific about what sites they want to be on. I think a lot of them are still stuck in this mindset in that there are very premium placements. Um, so, you know, they're used to buying like 
whatever the Yahoo homepage. Um, and they're used to buying those, you know, the, the premium skins across deadline.com. Um, and so those are the things that they're really thinking about more. So it's, it's the context of, of the site that they're on because in their mind, it aligns with this premium audience that they're trying to reach. But I think we've forgotten how big the internet has really gotten. And, and there are so many sites out there depending on one person that you can visit. Um, and so sometimes I think they fall into um, this pitfall of trying to cherry pick a lot of where they're trying to run their inventory um, because they're treating it again, more as this buffet of premium sites and less so thinking about the consumer that they're trying to reach and all the overlays they can do from a behavioral standpoint. Um, and so I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls we see, especially when we're trying to introduce programmatic to a partner. And we understand, you know, it's, it is a big, scary world out there on the internet. There's so many nooks and crannies. There definitely is a little unsavory things out there too. And like, how do we help educate clients to understand that we can work with partners like StackAdapt who have kind of um, this built-in safety net um, for brand safety and how we can additionally layer things on to kind of guarantee that we are reaching, um, you know, active and quality um, users on the other side of that screen. And so I think that's been the biggest piece. It's it's evolves from this conversation of, oh, like the whole internet is just bots. And, you know, how do we guarantee and verify that traffic um, to now trying to understand like, oh, we can trust, you know, the technology that we're really using, trust all the targeting segments and be diligent about A-B testing a lot of this so that we can help ourselves improve in the long run, but still utilize um, how the industry is evolving for the better. So I think that's one of the major pitfalls. Um, and then I think the other side is, you know, for clients that have become a lot more comfortable, there's so much room for growth um, in terms of utilizing programmatic. I think many clients probably just tend to really scrape the surface when it comes to what they can do, um, but understanding how, all the different channels within one ecosystem can really help each other and why it is beneficial to run um, programmatic audio, digital out of home, display all together in one ecosystem and what that can do um, for them in the long run in terms of building a stronger retargeting strategy, um, in terms of defining more insights about the consumer journey. I think a lot of that um, is barely touched by a lot of clients, especially newer ones. Um, and, and a lot of it does stem from my will say entertainment campaigns tend to be a little different um, than say CPG or retail. They're very short, um, right? So you have these very short flights that are no longer than maybe, I mean, four to 12 weeks at best, right? And unless you're building a large franchise where you're going to guarantee to have 10 Fast and Furious movies, um, you're likely not going to be able to reutilize the retargeting data to a T um, in the future. And so really keeping that in mind, uh, thinking about what your slate looks like, how can you build audience segments that are going to be applicable to another film? Um, you know, what is your studio's general slate strategy and how you are thinking about um, the films that you're acquiring or producing, how that ladder back up to kind of one holistic audience um, that's going to really speak to your particular studio. Um, so things like that kind of stem back up to a greater strategy within the studio itself. But having your marketing team be aware of that so that they can play into it is so important. And not a lot of times 
does that level of transparency kind of trickle down that way? A lot of times I think in entertainment, they need to really think about, you know, how, how it's going to trickle down and, and affect longer term strategy, um, how it's going to affect that next film and really thinking smartly about that so that the programmatic strategy can work in the long term and, and big picture for a studio. Um, and a lot of times, unfortunately, that information doesn't trickle down to the team. Um, and so a lot of entertainment marketing can feel very short sighted in that way because you're only planning for that one release weekend. And then after a theatrical film is done, um, you kind of move on to the next one, especially when you're working with bigger studios who have, you know, 20 plus films coming out in a year. Um, they move at such a speed and, and then consumer behavior also on the flip side changes so fast that what you did a year ago is almost non applicable anymore. Um, so I think that tends to be a, also a bigger struggle as well with, with some of the entertainment clients. That's interesting. And, um, you know, talking about movies and if we had to specifically focus on an ad for a movie, you know, say the call to action would be watch now or book tickets. These are things that would need a lot of time and uh, a commitment to a certain uh, appointment as well, right? So the customer journeys might not be linear. And if we take the example of a film like we did, you know, we need to watch the trailer, hear our friends speak about it, read reviews, and then make that decision. So what channels within programmatic and even outside of it would you recommend uh, for different parts of the funnel? If you could also give us a breakdown of for each part of the funnel, that would be great. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and this is where, you know, we still say traditional plays a huge role because it does really need to establish that initial awareness. Um, and there's a reason why trailer type content works really well for the entertainment industry. And so there's a very strong skew towards video placements um, across the board, whether it is on the big screen in these linear spots, um, or when we start looking at um, YouTube Trueview, or when we're looking at social video as well. And so I think that's when it becomes really important to start thinking about frequency, right? And, and frequency used to be really built upon display and social because they were the most cost efficient channels. Um, and so we used to see a lot of money gather there. And now it's really expanded because as a consumer, your behavior has also really changed. Um, and so now when you're out and about your day, I mean, you check your phone probably upwards of 50 times a day, but you're using a ton of different apps. Um, you're also going to either see billboards or you're checking your email on the computer during your workday. And so I think because there's so many different digital touch points um, that you can really find someone in a single day, the... There's so many more places, I think, that we have now kind of advised the client to really think about. But it's also less about really the exact placements, but also how you're guaranteeing that you are reaching the same person um, time and time again to build up that frequency. Because usually, um, there is limited number of dollars, right? And so being really smart about that um, and knowing that if you can only realistically reach 20% of your target audience at a frequency of say 10, how do you make sure you're actually building that average average frequency with that same group of 20% 20, 20 people, right? Um, and so that's really what we ask 
you know, our clients to think more about rather than really how many places um, they can really run. And again, that's why it goes back to being in a single ecosystem is really great um, because you can really track their behavior. And so, you know, when we're working with programmatic, um, you know, starting out with digital out of home um, and then kind of working our way all the way down from audio and then to display um, to really make sure that we can retarget each um, from each channel and really build a much more holistic look at a single person's consumer journey um, to match back up to that frequency. And then also being really smart about how we're using um, off-channel retargeting strategies too. So one thing that we really love doing, especially with Stack Adapt, is we'll build a Metapixel um, and we'll hand that off to our Stack Adapt team so that we can retarget people um, who are engaging with our ads through the Stack Adapt ecosystem. And again, we know that Meta and Stack Adapt sit you know, clearly in two different ecosystems. Um, and this is our way to kind of bridge them to talk to each other so that we can continue to build up that frequency. So there are awesome tricks like that, that we love to use and, and really think about again, how one person is going from one device and one screen to another, and really more about that experience from a consumer end, um, really more than what specific channels or tactics make sense um, for this film. It should be really what specific tactics and channels make sense for this target audience. Um, and then the film should kind of fit into that, right? It should fit into their natural journey already. Yeah, so that's how we more so think about it. And and again, that that includes multiple ways, I think, where now we have more advantage from an advertising perspective to be more specific about the partners and the channels that we do choose. Um, a lot of it comes down to the targeting capabilities um, that's going to be offered by these different platforms and channels. It's also going to be dependent on the type of creative that you can run to um, and what makes a lot of sense. So for instance, like audio, we find it really great from a frequency building standpoint. Um, but if it doesn't have that initial awareness, maybe the title of the film is not unique enough. Um, it doesn't have any actors maybe that would ring a bell um, and it needs more of a visual element Then we might recommend against it um, and switch it out with say a uh, more cost-effective video. Um, and so there are different tactics like that too, that we really take into account. Um, because again, the, the product is already existing for us in the entertainment world. It's already created. It's already done. Um, you know, there's very specific, uh, value adds that we can go ahead and put out there. And so really thinking about how that fits into the target consumer and what resonates with them is, is the key thing that we try and think about, you know, as we talk about which tactics and channels that we're really going to utilize here. So Amanda, we spoke about a host of things, you know, campaign tactics, uh, what's happening right now with traditional media versus uh, digital media. So could you tell us how we can measure the success of campaigns? Yeah. So in the world of entertainment, it's usually very easy to decide whether or not we were successful. It's, it's all about either butts in seats or, or sales. Um, and so there's a lot of markers, I will say, where in the past we've tried to really guess, you know, how a film is going to do. There's been millions of dollars invested into programs to try and predict the success of film based off all of these different KPIs. Um, but the core KPI at the end of the day is is just about how much money that these studios are going to make back, right? That, and that's generally what most businesses track back to. Um, and there was this very interesting phenomenon, I think, early on um, 
in in the theatrical space particularly because a lot of the ticket sales were happening um, either through Fandango, um, you know, they were being bought through Fandango.com. And that was about, I would say, probably like 30% of sales. And then all the other sales were basically made at the movie theater itself, right? And this was before when you can pick seats in the movie theater, you literally just showed up with your date, you looked at the big screen, you looked at the times on the board, and then you decided really right then and there what you were going to watch. Um, and so a lot of that purchasing decision was made in a place where we couldn't track. Um, and so that's why also I think a lot of the bigger entertainment campaigns tended to be so awareness heavy. Obviously, TV operated slightly different. You're trying to drive tune in. Um, there are different metrics that you're trying to amount to. But at the end of the day, um, you wanted your your movie to or your TV show to be popular. And so if we really try to, I think, look at a different measure of success outside of sales, because that's just so obvious, then I would really say, and maybe I'm a little biased because I have a social background, but it really is that social chatter that we have um, really, really strive to generate. Um, really putting your movie into the zeitgeist um, is what a lot of studios and, and production companies really strive for. It makes it feel like it is everywhere. It's talked about. It's that water cooler conversation that creates the FOMO um, that all of these studios are really looking for. And that's why I think also there was the ability to kind of shift really into that social space and be where those conversations were happening. It's it's definitely a double-edged sword, right? Because it's also the most public of conversations that were happening. And so, um, you know, my background a lot, especially for Warner Brothers, was really measuring a lot of this social conversation. And while it was really um, remarkable to see how there is a correlation to how much social chatter is happening um, compared to whether or not I think your film was going to be embedded in the zeitgeist, I won't even talk about sales particularly because I think a film can be very popular, but not have great sales because uh, it was just the wrong weekend for it to come out, right? But it's still probably going to make dollars back in terms of video on demand, um, licensing, um, you know, being sold to a streamer. There's other ways for the studio to recruit their dollars back outside of now just opening weekend. And all of those social metrics are really going to help close that deal after that. So a lot of times now we're really looking at how popular a film is um, based off how much social buzz um, that we're seeing across it, right? And and it's it's kind of a double-edged sword that I say because a social conversation is the most public. It's the only one that you can measure. So obviously very hard to see if something is going to be talked about literally at the water cooler, um, you know, in, in these offline conversations, but using social as that proxy um, is really what we saw a lot of studios tend to gravitate towards. And it's still something we still see very important to them to this day, because again, it's the thing that breeds franchising. Um, it breeds sequels, right? It breeds better licensing deals for, for all of these studios. And so I think that's going to be another huge marker for it. And, and so we're seeing studios now try to be more embedded, I think, in pop culture, um, and relevant conversations. So, and that even starts with a lot of like casting decisions, right? It's, it stems all the way from when the movie is being produced to, to the marketing itself. Um, and I think the best marketing 
uh, entertainment campaigns that we've seen have really acknowledged what's happening in these live environments and what conversations are taking place in finding relevant ways for their movies to really kind of mesh with that. Um, And I think that's why we also see kind of a shift towards influencers as a proxy for having those relevant conversations basically being plants you know, for these studios, um, and also a huge shift into brand partnerships as well, um, relying on brands that have built in audiences, um, so that they can kind of ride off the wave knowing that, you know, a theatrical campaign is probably too short to really build that large of an audience, unless you're going to be, uh, I don't know, like a Barbie, right, where it's been anticipated for over a year. So you've had over a year to kind of really build that audience. Otherwise, if not, you have three weeks to make someone fall in love with you. And it's much easier to use the power of a friend in the form of another brand to kind of help you do that through brand partnership. So I think there's going to be a lot more of that too. Um, just because they have to get smarter on how to, to get you to pay attention. And I think it's again, it's all kind of stemming back from this. It's like a new way of word of mouth, right? Um, social for sure is. I guess the most basic form of word of mouth, but basically trying to fake it till they make it um, through brand partnerships, through influencers and finding other ways to really build um, brand equity in such a short time, um, I think is going to continue to be the key that we see because us as consumers, we're just, we're getting really, really smart. We can see through it. We're really, uh, you know, there's too much information on the internet about um, actresses, productions, directors, and whatever, right? And so um, it's becoming harder and harder to kind of fake it in that way. Um, and so your trailer is just no longer going to cut it. And so finding all those other angles, whether it's below the line or above the line to really engage consumers um, with the the show or the, the movie you have is, is going to be the next key, I think, to being really successful here. If a marketer right now is just starting off or maybe working with a smaller organization um, on a smaller budget movie, on promoting a smaller budget movie or something which is not so large scale, may not be a movie, but an entertainment piece, what would, um, you know, what are your suggestions for them? What approach would you give them at this point? Yeah, I I think I think the first key is to really be realistic about your resources. And to plan from that perspective, because if you are at the core of it, a smaller film, or you just don't have the resources of a larger studio, the same tactics that work for them just realistically aren't going to work for you. And so making sure that you have a game plan that's realistic for your budget, I think is very, very important. And I think a lot of times when we've worked with smaller studios or even filmmakers directly, um, you know, they, there's this very glamorized, um, you know, purview of Hollywood and, and they want that. And of course we want that for them too. Um, but just being very realistic about, you know, the resources that we have. And knowing that, you know, if you're going to spend all of your money buying one TV spot on linear with zero support, otherwise, it's most likely just not going anywhere. And so I think that to us um, is really the key thing that I would remind anyone is just being really realistic with the budget um, that you have at hand and trying to make the best of that. Um, And I think there are other places outside of just spending media dollars that people can be a lot smarter with, Um, you know, the, the... we get a lot of requests for asking for things to go viral. Um, and if I knew 
how to make things go viral, I would be an influencer right now and, and probably rolling in dough for a couple of years. But like, clearly, I don't know what the secret sauce is. And I don't think it exists. Um, and so really trying to understand, you know, that it doesn't going viral just isn't necessarily a very um, strategic thing. Sometimes it just happens, right? And the best way for it to happen is to be very adventurous and authentic and bold with your creative, um, really understand the target audience that's really going to clamp on and um, and ride with what you're saying, um, you know, become those advocates on your behalf and utilize them. Um, I think because communities now are um, so smart, they can really see through your BS really easily. And so, you know, approaching communities authentically and really working with them and, and having them work as free advocates on your behalf, I think are is going to be a much more powerful play than, you know, buying a Super Bowl spot, for instance. And so really thinking about all the avenues that you have at your disposal and not just really the more traditional advertising channels um, that you tend to see um, larger films go about. And really just a lot more A-B testing, I think. Uh, tends, we tend to have a very interesting uh, challenge within entertainment in that, you know, the, the film or the TV show itself is also your creative. Um, and while obviously there's very smart manipulation happening, there are these very, very brilliant people, brilliant video producers who are able to manipulate that into a very great and convincing trailer. Um, there's a lot of other content that you could be working with, like in terms of making memes, in terms of cutting scenes and clips, um, or using even the actors and directors at your disposal to produce content. I think that's a little less traditional than what you see in, in the space, you know, really deviating away from the 1530 and full trailers, um, and trying something new. Um, and knowing that the cost really is the cost of creative production, but just putting it out there really doesn't cost anything to you. Um, and so trying, I think, new ways to talk to your audiences um, with the content that you have and putting a little more elbow grease in so that you can kind of, quote unquote, go viral there instead of waiting for your, your media to help amplify that. So I think there are a lot of different avenues to take. Just don't take the avenue that was you know, paved for someone with a very, very different budget. Amazing. Thank you so much. Super exciting insights. And uh, I'm sure whoever you are, marketer, brand agency, you had a lot to take away. I sure did. And it's one of the best parts of hosting uh, this show. I learned a lot today. So thank you so much, Amanda. Great to have you here. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me and happy to come back. This was a lot of fun. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, definitely hope to have you back really soon. And to you, the one who's stuck around till the very end. Thank you so much for sticking around and make sure you subscribe to the podcast to listen to the new episodes right when they drop. And if you like the podcast, share it with your teammates. It could be a cool resource to post on your office work chat as a recommendation. So go ahead and do that. And if you want to get in touch, write to us at academy at stackadapt. Dot com. That's academy at stackadapt.com. We have episodes releasing every alternate Wednesdays. So stay tuned. Until then, this has been the How Agencies Thrive podcast. See you in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the How Agencies Thrive podcast. If you like what you heard, then there's three things that you can do to support the show. Number one, subscribe. Number two, leave us a review. And number three, 
share our podcast on social media or with anyone who might find value in this content. If you have questions or feedback or just want to learn how agencies and brands work with StackAdapt, you can find us at stackadapt.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.